Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. This is it. This is the Cape Crozier Emperor Penguin Colony. Wow. I've never seen an Emperor Penguin up close before, and I have to say, they're enormous. <laughs> they're big. <laughs> they definitely are. And they can change stature posture quite a bit. So if they're kind of tucked in, they're pretty low, but they can stretch up and actually can reach about this high. And you're gesturing at waist height. It's yeah. quite some height. Yeah. Big birds. And then it always blows my mind to think about these birds diving to depths of three, four, five hundred meters. It's amazing. Kia ora. This is Voices from Antarctica from RNZ. I'm Alison Balance, and I'm exploring what it's like to live in and do science in Antarctica. This is part four, best journey in the world. Later on, I'm in search of a charismatic invertebrate. But first, you can probably tell, I've made it out of Scott Base, and I'm in my idea of heaven. And since we got here two and a half weeks ago, the chicks have gotten a lot bigger. They're kind of grey on the body, and then they have a black top of the head and white... Uh, eye surrounds. They're actually really pretty and cute, and, and I think they're one of the very few bird chicks that are pretty. Most bird chicks, in my mind, are ugly, but these are pretty. My fellow penguin fan is Marcus Horning. He's come all the way from Alaska to join a Niwa team working on the Ross Sea Research and Monitoring Program. They've got four projects taking place in the Ross Sea this southern summer, and this emperor penguin study is one of them. Emperors really are remarkable birds. They're the largest penguin, and as Niwa's David Thompson reminds me, they have an extraordinary breeding cycle. Emperor penguins never, to breed, touch land. So they breed on um, really secure patches of sea ice. They have this very extreme breeding cycle where they lay their eggs at the start of winter and incubate them through the, the coldest period down here in Antarctica on, on the sea ice and uh, raise their chicks before the sea ice breaks up for the summer. This colony is at Cape Crozier. It's on the easternmost tip of Ross Island and it has a very famous history. It's the first one that was discovered in Antarctica, uh, Emperor Penguin Colony. It also features in the book The Worst Journey in the World. 
where uh, Scott's team during the first winter sent three people from Cape Evans on foot in the depths of winter, pulling a sledge to, or two sledges to come over here and uh, snaffle some eggs. The book The Worst Journey in the World was written by Apsley Cherry Gerard. It was about the trials and tribulations he faced back in 1911, along with Edward Wilson and Bertie Bowers. They made the 120-kilometre trek to Cape Crozier in the mid-winter dark. It was so cold their teeth cracked, and their sleeping bags and clothes were almost permanently frozen solid. Brrr. My best journey in the world, on the other hand, has no darkness, and it started with an easy helicopter flight. One of the people I'm catching up with here is American Geeta McDonald. She's the team leader, and she's worked with Emperor Penguins for years. But this is your first time seeing Emperor Penguins? It is my first time seeing Emperor Penguins, and as a biologist, I'm ecstatic. I can imagine. <laughs> They're really fun to watch. I still remember this was the one of the first colonies that I ever came to, so I know what it's like. It's beautiful with the ice shelf in the background. It's the perfect time of day. I love the sounds they make. When did you start studying emperor penguins? In 2010, I came down with Paul Panganis to study their diving physiology at Cape Washington. But as part of that study, we actually surveyed all of the colonies in the Ross Sea. So the first colony I went to was Beaufort Island, and this was the second colony I ever came to. So how many colonies are there in the Ross Sea? So seven. So tell me, what is it exactly that you're looking at? We're trying to figure out where these birds are going um, to find their food, what they're eating, how deep they're diving. So learn a lot more about their foraging ecology, habitat use, um, to try to predict how they're going to be able to change the changing climate. So this is the second most southern colony. It's been hypothesized that the Ross Sea may be a refuge with climate change, that these might be the, the colonies that can persist. But even within the Ross Sea, the colonies fluctuate a lot. And so we're trying to understand, okay, well, we count them on land. They seem to be doing just fine. There's a lot of fluctuations. So now we need to learn more about what are they doing at sea. So, yeah, what are they eating? Where do they go? How much energy do they need? Um, what are the important areas? You know, what areas might we need to protect? Um, and just, in general, learn a lot more about them. So how are you going to know from this study what they're eating? We instrumented 19 birds. Yeah. So all of them got data loggers that measure GPS location, so we know where they go. They all measure their diving behavior, so we know how deep they're diving and when they're diving. And they all measure three-axis acceleration, so that's kind of the signal we can see when they're stroking. We can potentially see when they're feeding. So all 19 birds got those instruments. Seven of the birds got additional instruments. They're little Leonardo accelerometer magnetometers. And they collect some of the same data, but at a much finer scale resolution. So it's also collecting magnetic data. So you can actually recreate the 3D tracks, the 3D dimensional tracks of the penguins. So seven birds have that. And then five birds also have a camera. So far, only one camera has come back, and it didn't eat, but we're hoping to get video of the prey that they're eating. So there's been a few diet studies where they actually lavage the stomach, so they actually see what's in the stomach, and they primarily eat krill and silverfish. And so we're hoping with the camera data and the accelerometry data on the same bird, we can actually identify just using accelerometry 
when they're eating and potentially even what they're eating. Like if they're feeding fish, does the signal look different than if they're eating krill? Okay, like everything we've learned about this colony is new. So it's been a lot of fun to look at the data. So you're looking at what these birds are doing while they're rearing chicks because that's obviously a really important phase because they're feeding several mouths, not just themselves. Do we have any idea what emperor penguins do for the rest of the year when they're not here on the ice looking after their chicks? We know a little bit. In the Ross Sea, Jerry Coyman again has instrumented penguins at the end of the breeding season and almost all of those birds headed to the eastern Ross Sea. And then during a cruise in the late 90s, it was like a lot of molting penguins were observed in the eastern Ross Sea. So it's been proposed that after the adults fledge their chicks, they go to sea, they swim to the eastern Ross Sea where there's stable sea ice. When they molt, they lose all of their feathers and they don't thermoregulate well. And if they go into the water, it is likely deadly. So they need to find ice that they know will be good for a month. And so the eastern Ross Sea has large ice flows that are reliably there every year. So we think that all of the birds in the western Ross Sea, or most of the birds, actually go to the eastern Ross Sea to molt. What we don't know is what they do after the molt, because any instrument we put on them here, they will molt off in January. So in 2013, I was on a project with Jerry Coyman where we went to the Eastern Ross Sea with the goal of catching birds after they molted and instrumenting them and and figuring out what they did. But due to typical Antarctic logistics, the ship was delayed three weeks. By the time we actually got to the Eastern Ross Sea, we we actually, as we were sailing there, we were watching adults, you know, and so we think that most of the breeding adults had already started their return journey. So we caught 20 birds and we instrumented them And they did some really impressive migrations, but not a single one of them was a breeding bird. So we still don't know what the breeding birds do after they molt. Um, Most of what we know about what they do in the winter is from the French colony, because there's a base right near the colony um, in Adelie land. But we know very little about what they do in the Ross Sea during the winter. So this this is the time period they're actually... We know the most information. It is an important time period because the chicks need to get fat. They fledge in a month. They have a high energy demands. But there is still a lot of information during the rest of the year that we were hoping to slowly discover. But it's challenging. It's hard to get a ship to go to the eastern Ross Sea. It can be so hard to collect the simplest information in Antarctica. Gita and Marcus and David are playing that favourite game of mine waiting for their tagged penguins to return. We head back to the camp, which is about a 20-minute walk from the emperor penguin colony, and it's David's turn on watch. So each penguin that, we've, we're, that we're tracking with GPS and other sorts of devices has also been deployed with a, a radio tag. Um, and that sound that you can hear there is, is one of those tags. It's the tag that we, we retrieved off a bird that came back to the colony today. And we, that's the reason why we know it came back, because we could hear that sound. Without that, we'd be really looking for a needle in a haystack. There's probably about 2,000 chicks um, around the corner, each with two parents, and only 19 of those are carrying transmitting tags. And we know when we hear that that the bird's on its way back into the colony from the sea, and we go and, uh, go and look for it. How many tags have you still got to get back? Um, we have, well, we deployed 19, and we are now sitting at 
six to go. Can you tell me where we are? Yeah, we're sitting in a snowbank, staring out over the sea ice shelf, looking at Adelie penguins coming and going to the uh, massive rookery behind us. Yes, there's this distant murmur, just these waves of sound coming from, what, tens of thousands of penguins over there, or even more than that? Probably more than that. I think it's probably in the hundreds of thousands. How long have you been here? We're coming up for three weeks. And you've had enough bad weather to give you a real appreciation of how awful that worst journey in the world was? Well, we've had some bad weather, but I wouldn't say it's anything like the sort of weather those guys had in the middle of winter. Of course, we're here, it's 24 hours of daylight, and during the calmer periods like we're having this afternoon, it's really quite pleasant. You know, it's warm-ish um, for Antarctica, and uh, we've, we've had some wind. We've had to move our tents into a more sheltered position, but we've had enough good weather to, to sort of compensate for that. So describe the camp to me. What, how have you got it set up? Well, we've kind of put the camp on a little finger of sea ice that's nudging into the ice shelf, so the walls of sort of bluey-green-white ice that we can see around here are the actual Ross ice shelf that's coming down off the plateau. And we've got one main tent, that's that blue tent over there, the Polar Haven, which we use for cooking and just hanging out during the day. We've got all our food stacked outside, frozen stuff stays frozen rather conveniently. We've got an emergency tent straight ahead, which if things go bad and the ice shelf that we're camped on starts to break up, we make for that slightly higher ground and um, hang out in there until we get rescued. And then we've each got a little sleeping tent to our right and uh, a toilet tent, which is that little sort of yellow and red tent there behind the uh, snow wall. I'm glad there's a toilet tent (laughs) for both privacy and comfort. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, there's the small things that make the difference. Just um, whilst we've been talking, I'll just go through the, the tags that we're still waiting to hear and see if we can detect any birds coming in. No birds. Just need to keep scanning. So you pretty much scan all day and well into the evening? Yeah, we split the team into two, so the two of us get up about 5.30 and we're out just after six um, to scan all day, sort of 10, 15 minute intervals if we can, right through until about midnight. And then we have six hours off overnight when it, it turns out we've you know, quite a few birds come in. And I just have to say, the sun just suddenly started beaming warmth out of the sky, which is a very <laughs> odd thing in Antarctica. I know, it, it, it does get warm, eh? And these um, snowbanks behind us do start to melt, and you, if you sit here long enough with the sun out, you hear the sound of dripping water behind us. There's some quite spectacular icicles to your left. There are, yes. They've been getting bigger and bigger, so they kind of drip during the day, and then as the evening draws in um, and the sun gets a little bit lower in the sky, it cools right down again and they, they freeze up. So, yeah, they're really spectacular. I might go and thaw my bottom now. I know, it is a bit numbing, isn't it? (laughs) She moves with all the grace of a waddling penguin. (laughs) And that's the sound of my little crampons underneath my big extreme cold weather boots. Crunching through the camp on the sea ice. Hello. 
I'm sneaking over so you can explain, uh, living in the field in Antarctica, how you are making water. <laughs> oh, we're melting snow and then filtering it. So you've opened the window. <laughs> um, well, we have a little stash, courtesy of Parker and David and Gita too. We're cutting blocks of the snow uh, from the drifts on the side of this little alcove. So they've stacked them up next to the tent like a yeah. wall, and, and you just reach just out grab and grab one, one. Put it in here, and it's a little bit too big, so I'm just cutting it down. And then this is our heater. It's a diesel-burning stove heater. Keeps us warm. And we just keep a pot of water or snow on there, and it gradually melts. And then right behind you here is a filtration system. It's the second one. We have another one over there. So after we melt it, there's a lot of particulate matter in there. Maybe it gets blown over here from the Adeli rookery next door. And we actually try to keep hot water um, handy all the time because it's really nice to have have it ready when you need it. Um, and all's good. <laughs> makes a nice warm heart to your campsite. Yes, absolutely. Now we're waiting for the birds to come back. <laughs> so, While we patiently wait, and on the subject of water, at a field camp you melt ice and go without showers. Back in the early days of Scott Base, we heard in episode two there was a big ice melter in the kitchen. But what about these days? Uh, my name is Keith Jacob. I am the water engineer. Water engineer, is that... Water in, water out? Uh, water in and water out. We're turning seawater into drinking water and for our showers and cooking and we treat all our human waste before it goes back in the ocean uh, and also deal with all the water reticulation and wastewater reticulation to move that water about from A to B. Now, you have the delicious irony in that you're on the planet that actually has more fresh water than anywhere else in the world, but it's all locked up as ice. So there's no fresh running water for you to get water from. Yeah, that's right. So how do you do it? We've got a reverse osmosis plant, which is pushing the seawater through a, a membrane, which will separate the, the salt ions out of the salt water and leave us with um, a salty water mixture that we return back to the ocean and our fresh water, which is fresh for drinking. So whereabouts does that happen? You, can, you might have to point out a window. Um, yeah, something. that happens down right out the front of Scott Base. There's a... a gantry that gets our our pipe from our pump shed goes across the beach and through a hole in the sea ice which is there most of the time that can be a problem for us when the ice breaks out it can the ice can damage our equipment so we have to lift the probe out of the water how much water do you produce a day our machine operates at eight liters a minute um, and the rough maths on that is, is about ten thousand liters a day that sounds a lot, but is it a lot for the number of people here? Um, when we've got more than about 65, 70 people, we're running 24 hours a day and just treading water, just keeping our, keeping our tanks full. We've got about 160,000 litres and we like to keep a lot in reserve if we have any mechanical problems and we've also got a firefighting reserve as well. Do you initially. have to keep that water heated so that it doesn't just turn back to yeah, ice again? Yeah, it does. If it's, going, if it's coming inside or outside, it's, it's all heated. That takes a lot of energy and, and more equipment. So, yeah, the water tanks are actually heated to about 10 degrees Celsius. Now, I gather that the seawater out there is pretty cold. So does that have an impact on the, the reverse osmosis system? Yeah, salinity and temperature both affect that process. And currently it's about 1.5 degrees below zero because the salty water doesn't freeze at, at the same temperature as fresh water. And that does slow us down but there's not much we can do. We could heat the water, but then you're using energy to heat the water. So um, at the end of the day, you've just got to 
stop it from freezing and then we can run it through our machinery. And what about the other half of the equation, all of the waste water? Um, that's a lot of filtering as well, a lot of pumping and moving it around from A to B. And uh, we've also got a, a wastewater treatment plant. We get help from some microorganisms to treat the waste. Can you show me that? I can. Or... Yep, that's where I'm heading right now. I will follow. Yeah. your aerobic fitness though. Yeah you do um, I think people do between 10 and 15,000 steps a day yeah just being on base um, so we'll get get you sorted out with some overalls and some boots. Suitably kitted up we head outside where I'm hoping to meet another rather special species a tardigrad also known as a water bear. Downstairs we've got an ozone generator, uh, which is how we sterilise our fresh water before it goes back into the ocean. There's a nice irony in producing ozone in Antarctica underneath the ozone hole. <laughs> yes, I heard, heard one of the scientists talking about the ozone hole the other night and I didn't actually ask the question whether I'm helping or hindering that effort. I well, think it might be helping. The ozone, the ozone might be helping. How you produce it might be hindering it. You never know. <laughs> yes, yeah. What's that banging? That is called our screen, and that's the first process where we um, screen the solids out of the sewage as it arrives. We've got like um, a screen mesh, and there's some brooms that sweep off, and every time you hear a clunk, that's a, a broom being cleaned. And what happens with all the solids? That's our first screening, goes through that brush screens, and they end up down here in this bag. When that bag's full, I'll um, double bag that up and put it outside into a container and when that container's full we put them in a, a shipping container it's all weighed and when that gets back to New Zealand that'll be steam sterilised and then buried. So all the number twos go home they don't stay on the pond? That's on right the yeah all the solids go home and it's just the liquids going back into the ocean. So out again I think this is one of the um, best views on base. We've got, we're looking out south across the, the Ross Sea um, and it's also informally known as the Aurora Lounge. I think this couch might even get dragged outside up here in the, in the winter for Aurora viewing. <laughs> and upstairs we've got pre-clarifiers and six um, bio-beds. And then a final clarifier, and, and during the process of the water flowing through these these bins, the microorganisms do their work. And we've got fairly clean products to be sending back to the ocean. And like I said, we, we treat that with ozone before it goes back anyway. So what are the microorganisms that you harness to help you in this job? The ones, we start off with a bacteria at one end of the food scale. We've got amoebas through to um, ciliates. And then we start getting some rotifers and some worms. And if we're lucky, at the top of the food chain, we've got our water bears, um, our tardigrades. I haven't seen them for a few weeks. Once a week, I take some samples and uh, we'll grab some out now and we'll see what we can find. So you have to be a bit of a biologist as well as a water engineer. Um, I've had a little bit of, bit of training in that, but it was sort of something that excited me about coming down here that... 
Um, we might see a few seals and penguins on the beach, but the, the most biology I'm going to see while I'm down here is going to be my little tardigrades and ciliates. So it's, it's quite a fascinating world when you start to hear about it, about what they're... Um, They've got their own little like, ecosystem and they're just trying to survive. Now some swimming ciliates here. It's quite busy in there. There's some really little things buzzing around. You've got an entire world in those tanks. It's like, yeah, it's like a rainforest or a jungle, I think, so I look at it in the, the tardigrades, the top of the food chain. It's probably the most biodiverse bit of Antarctica now. It is, yeah. yeah you, you look out the window, there's not many species, but there's, there's lots happening down here in the, the waste treatment plant. No tardigrades today, not even a, a dead one. Aww. On my first day at doing the biology checks with Bruce, my predecessor, I, I found a live tardigrade quite quickly. And it's a bit like catching a 10 kilo trout on your, on your first cast. I didn't really appreciate how lucky I was to see one so soon. Keith and I head back outside to talk about tardigrades and why I'm more than a bit disappointed not to see one of these tiny creatures. They're plump, quite cute, have segments, eight legs, live in water, are more commonly known as water bears or, get this, moss piglets, and they honestly have superpowers. I think they've taken them into space and they've survived and they're, I think, one of the oldest living creatures on the planet. Yeah, I think they've survived all the mass extinctions. Yeah, I think one of the only creatures to, to survive the mass extinctions, which is interesting because they're gradual in, in our environment down here because we've got this artificial environment that we're living in and they're sort of tagging along with us. Yeah, I think you can boil them. I think you can take them down to almost absolute zero. They're almost indestructible. Yeah, and they do... I think they can be dormant for quite a long time as well. Oh, that's right. That's another of their yeah, super one of the, skills. one of their little tricks is to sort of shut themselves down and when the conditions are right, they come back to life again. Yeah. Well, it's really nice to think of them in there helping deal with all of the, the waste from Scott Base. Yeah, they're doing their little job. Just like you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm, I'm here for a year. They might be here for longer. I don't know how, they, how long they live for. No idea. No. I haven't met a biologist who can tell me that yet. Keep asking. Yeah. There's a question for you. Anyone know how long a tardigrade lives for? Let me know. Anyway... My new species list for this episode is emperor penguins. Tick. Tardigrades. Hmm, still waiting on that one. And back at Cape Crozier, Gita and the team are also still waiting. Would it be fair to describe that as the sound of frustration? Yes, it is the sound of frustration. The only thing you hear is the test receiver. <laughs> this is the first time in a few days that we've gone 24 hours without a capture. So hopefully tonight while we're out here, one of the birds will come back. Otherwise, I hope to wake up to a bird in the colony tomorrow morning. So six left. We just need to catch one or two a day in order to get all our instruments back. Because you're running out of time, eh? We are. We're supposed to go back to Scott Base in five days. So we have about four more days left to get our instruments. They can be gone for up to 21, 22, 23 days. So we're hoping to get at least four more back before we have to leave. Well, I've got my fingers crossed that'll be before I leave. I hope so too. (laughs) (laughs) Then you can actually see what we are out here doing. You've been listening to Voices from Antarctica from RNZ. I'm Alison Balance. A big thanks to Antarctica New Zealand, the staff at Scott Base, and the Penguin team at Cape Crozier for hosting me and my microphones.
We will return to the Emperor Penguin Colony in a forthcoming episode, but for now, do stick around for more sounds from the colony after this. Don't forget, you can find Voices from Antarctica at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld or at rnz, our changing world, wherever you listen to podcasts. Catch you next time. Kia ora mai.